Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 274, The Missing Shire. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to one of the longest narrative episodes I've ever done, and it's all about pets. It turns out, there's a lot of material on pets and pet ownership in the medieval era, and we dive right into it on the members' feed. Here's a sample. Medieval people liked their pets so much that Hildegard wasn't the only one to get weird about it. Take this story from France in 1371. It was during that year that an unfortunate man by the name of Aubrey de Montdidier was murdered. And a short time afterwards, it was noted that Aubrey's dog took a strong disliking to a guy named Maquier. And this caught the attention of the people of the town. And eventually, the information was brought before the court of King Charles V of France. The people of the town were convinced that this dog had found the killer. Charles V looked at this and decided that this matter should be settled through trial by combat between Maquier and the dog. And if you'd like to know how it ends, you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jennifer, Linda, and Andrea for signing up already. In the last several episodes, I've been breaking down the weird evidence that surrounds Edward towards the end of his reign. It's been a deep dive, and it's been focused on some pretty granular details. And the reason why I've been doing this is because I can't conclusively make a statement on what he did and why. It's shrouded. All I can do is give you the evidence, and then give you the context in which that evidence took place, and provide a few thoughts and theories on what it might mean. And that's why the BHP has felt a little bit like cereal over the last month or so. Now, it's coming to an end, and we're going to return to the usual tone very soon. But I do hope that you enjoyed this foray into the questions that Edward's reign has raised. Because questions like this, questions without answers, and questions that require a thorough look not just into the written record, but also into the archaeology and cultural matters, is what makes the study of history come alive. The questions and the digging is what the study of history is all about. So, let's get into one of the last big questions about the end of Edward's reign. The Shires. Imagine that you're King Edward. You've just annexed an enormous portion of your territory from your recently deceased sister and disinherited your niece. And upon seeing this, the remainder of the five boroughs has come under your dominion, as did the Welsh kingdoms. And in the blink of an eye, you've found yourself ruling over pretty much everything south of the Humber. So what do you do now? Well, the last century or so has been really busy with war, and so that might have left you thinking that war is the only duty of a king. So you might be thinking that I'm asking who Edward should invade. But I'm not. Being a king was, at its core, an administrative position. Edward was expected to rule. And suddenly, he had a ton of mercy and land. Only, they weren't really Mercian anymore. They were West Saxon, or perhaps Anglo-Saxon. After all, with the annexation, we're essentially at the point where Edward has truly earned that title that he'd been asserting in documents. He really is now the king of the Anglo-Saxons. So perhaps what we're talking about now is the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, rather than just Wessex. But that doesn't answer the question of what to do with all these new lands. I mean, these lands needed to be integrated into his kingdom. Furthermore, he needed to be able to rule those lands not from Tamworth, 
but from his own base of power in Winchester. So how do you, as a medieval king, go about making sure that your power and influence, basically your ability to levy taxes, raise armies, and enforce the law, is maintained across both distances and cultures? Well, one way to ease the burden of administrating these lands would be to have them set up in a manner similar to Wessex. So, to shire them. And to remind you of what a shire is, it's essentially a larger form of the multiple estate system that we've talked about in prior episodes. You have a central city for the shire, for which the shire is usually named after, and then you have other towns and estates that support and answer to that town. And then the surrounding villages of those supporting towns and estates are answering to them, and so on. So, for example, the city of Lincoln was at the heart of Lincolnshire, but the supporting towns that supported Lincoln also had their own villages. Similarly, the city of Hartford was supported by the surrounding lands of Hertfordshire. It's a medieval bureaucratic solution to the question of how do we make tax collection and administration easier? And it wasn't half bad, since we still use various forms of it today. Thus, it would make sense for Edward to organize Mercia into shires, as it would not only make it easier to administer, but it would also make Mercia look a lot more like Wessex. And so you'd have a single form of government that all were subjected to. But here's the thing. Mercia was an old kingdom. It already was organized, and it had been a functional kingdom for a very long time. And you might be wondering, was it already shired? And right now, there's actually a fierce debate among Mercian scholars over exactly that issue because no one is sure when precisely Mercia was organized into shires. All we can be sure of is that at one point, Mercia was organized into regions, but eventually it was organized into shires. And we don't know when that flip happened. Some suggest that the shires are just codification of previous organizations, that there was already an unofficial shiring, and eventually those areas gained the official title to go along with what was already happening. Others argue that Mercia was shired all the way back in the 8th century. Still others argue that it wasn't done until the middle of the 10th century, during the reign of Edward's son, Athelstan. And some even argue that the shires weren't set up until even later, during the reign of King Athelred II, a king that you probably know as Ethelred the Unready. This is a question where the potential answers span hundreds of years. And right about now, you're probably wondering why we care. And we care because we're nerds, and nerds don't know when to quit, ever. But we also care because this is another key to the puzzle of Edward. How much power he actually wielded and how much resistance he was actually facing during the end of his reign might center around this issue. You see, there's a group of scholars, including David Hill and others, who argue that there's a good chance that Mercia was already shired when Edward annexed it. But upon taking control, Edward shired it again. And the evidence for this particular story is not only compelling, it also potentially answers some of our other questions. That same evidence, though, is also pretty vast. It includes knowledge of Anglo-Saxon land rights, archaeology, and some very, very obscure references in primary sources. For example, once you go down the rabbit hole of Shiring Mercia, it suddenly becomes actually oddly important that the town of Winchcombe didn't used to be attached to Gloucester. And if I kept going down that rabbit hole, you would probably get thoroughly lost. And even if you didn't get lost, 
you'd definitely be praying for death. So to avoid that, I'm going to focus on just a small selection of what scholars rely on. And critically, it'll be the parts that tie into the story that we've been talking about for a few weeks now, the story of Edward and Mercia. But to be clear, there is a lot more out there if you're ever interested, like a lot more. Just go into JSTOR and start searching for some of the terms you're hearing in this episode. Just be sure to bring some trail mix and stay hydrated. Now, one of the primary sources, not just for this question, but also for this period, is a document called the Burgle Hydage. It lists West Saxon burrs and the number of hides that answer to them. Now, a hide in this case is the amount of land necessary to support one family. Consequently, we can get a rough idea of the population density, wealth, and organization of the lands covered by the hydage. But the hydage also leaves a lot of regions out. Kent is nowhere to be seen. Neither is London. But oddly, it does include Western Mercia. And that's why it's important for this discussion. Based on that fact, many scholars believe that this document was crafted in the last half of Edward's reign because it includes certain burrs in Mercia that didn't exist until the time of Edward and Athelflaed. Yet at the same time, it doesn't include the burrs in the northern part of the kingdom. And those things taken together indicate that it was probably written sometime in the middle of Edward's reign before northern Mercia was nabbed. Now, creating something like the Hydage would have been very useful to Edward at this point in his rule. It would have served as a form of census, letting him know how much food rent to expect from the various burrs. It also would have given him a reasonably accurate assessment of his military strength. Knowing how many hides of land these burrs held would let him know the size of the fur he should anticipate their eldermen would provide. So in the Burgle Hydage, we're seeing an attention to administration and organization that likely was taking place during Edward's reign. And interestingly, we're also seeing that Northern Mercia was left out of this organizational document. Warwick's there, Worcester's there, Buckingham's there, but not Chester, and not even Athelflaed's Tamworth. For a document that appears to be ostensibly assessing Edward's military strength, we're seeing nothing from Northern Mercia. That's interesting. But as curious as the hideage is, it comes with a big problem for us. Even though we're certain that it was made during a time when Wessex had already been shired, the way it lists the burrs isn't by shire. And that's part of why some scholars are convinced that this was, at its heart, a military document rather than a bureaucratic one. It doesn't say, hey, we should expect this amount of food rent from Devonshire. Instead, it says, this much land, and thereby this many families, answer to the burr at Exeter. That's a bit different, but it also means that it doesn't answer our question of, did Edward Shire Mercia? All it tells us is that Edward was interested in the organization of southwestern Mercia. However, historian David Hill has insight that might put all of this together for us. He took particular note of the fact that when Mercia was shired, whenever that was, there was an omission in the scheme. The shire system of Mercia, which still exists today for the most part, was set up in a way that focused upon major settlements in the same way that the West Saxon shires did. And that's a pretty typical organization for the South. And we see it all throughout Mercia. Worcestershire was based around Worcester. Oxfordshire was based around Oxford. Staffordshire was based around Stafford and so on. But if you're from the Midlands, or at least are familiar with the Midlands, you already know that there's no Tamworthshire. So what does that mean? 
The most politically significant settlement of Mercia, the capital of the region, is apparently lacking any supporting lands? That doesn't seem right. And this wasn't just a matter of Tamworth being absorbed into the shire of a larger town. It wasn't, not really. Instead, the area that should have been Tamworthshire was split up into pieces. The borderlines of the lands were split in a way that guaranteed that no holding would ever be given to the city. Instead, they were pledged to multiple other towns. Whoever cut up Tamworth appears to have done it deliberately. They gerrymandered it. And like gerrymandering today, this would have had the effect of sapping Tamworth of much of its political and administrative power. And that's a weird thing to do to a settlement as important as a capital city. Unless, of course, you specifically wanted to break the political power of that city. If this was an explicitly anti-Mercian policy, then this scheme of shiring would make perfect sense. And there appears to have been no love lost between King Edward and the people of Tamworth. I mean, he had his soldiers occupy the city. We also see him engaging in military maneuvers within northern Mercia even though the Chronicle is keen to point out that those were supposed to be his subjects. King Edward and Mercia had a complicated relationship, a relationship that seems to have been openly antagonistic at times, and in particular regions. And critically, this animosity was specific to Edward. His son Athelstan didn't have the same problems, and neither would his successors. It was just Edward. And so if you are looking for a period in time when an Anglo-Saxon monarch would lay down anti-Mercian policies, Edward's reign wasn't just the most likely time. It's honestly the only period where it makes sense. And that's where Hill and others land on it. Looking at the Hydage, and then looking at the organization of the Mercian shires and the omission of Tamworth, they've come to the conclusion that Mercia was already organized prior to Edward, as shown by the Virgil Hydage. But when he annexed the kingdom, he formed shires, or perhaps reshired it, in a way to break the power of Tamworth. So Edward, upon taking these new lands, not only organized them so as to make them easier to rule, he organized them to sap his internal enemies of their power. Even in bureaucracy, Edward appears to have been locked in conflict. But we know that wasn't the only thing Edward was up to after he annexed Mercia. He was also very active in northwestern Mercia. And on its face, it's a bit odd. I mean, for Edward, northwest Mercia was far from his base of operations and from his center of power in Winchester. Furthermore, northwest Mercia was a bit of a backwater in the dawn of the century. Granted, starting with Athelflaed's reestablishment of Chester, we are seeing a renewed interest in the territory, but for quite some time, it was neglected. And yet suddenly, we see King Edward showing tremendous amounts of interest in that region. In fact, we're seeing a huge surge in construction, and specifically in the construction of burrs, meaning military hardpoints, all within that area. And that's supposed to be his kingdom. So why is he building military defenses in his own house? Well, there are many ways that we can slice this, and some scholars have argued that Edward was simply completing his sister's task. After all, it was Athelflaed, not Edward, who reestablished Chester. And following that event, the archaeological record goes gangbusters. I mean, in 893, the Chronicle talked about how Chester was, quote, a deserted city in Wirral, end quote. And when we look at the archaeological record, we see support for that. 
even low-intensity agricultural occupation was vanishing by the 9th century. Chester was derelict and ruinous. But when Athelflaed took power, suddenly we see a massive shift in the archaeological record. Now, dating for this is a little bit difficult because it relies on the stratification of Chester, and a lot of early structures appear to have been small or temporary. But at least by 925, we're seeing major urban redevelopment, and it likely started a great deal earlier, probably coinciding with Athelflaed's reestablishment in 907. And similarly, as you know, she also constructed burrs along her western flank, including in nearby Runcorn. So it would be understandable if you attributed the bulk of military construction in the region to Athelflaed. But it wasn't. The bulk of it was by Edward. Shortly after Athelflaed's death, in 919, we see him constructing a burr at Thelwall on the Mersey, and then marching to and occupying the burr of Manchester. Two years later, we see him building a burr at the mouth of the River Cluid. And if you're from Abigaily or elsewhere in North Wales, you're probably familiar with the River Cluid. But for the rest of you, that's a river that's in North Wales. It runs by Ruthlin. And that's why scholars have long suspected that the burr that Edward constructed in 921 was built there. But whether it was actually built at Ruthlin or closer to the true mouth of the River Cluid, the fact that cannot be avoided here is that the River Cluid was in Wales. Specifically, it was in the Kingdom of Gwynedd. And if you think it's weird that Edward was constructing military strongholds and territories that are supposed to have been submitting to him, you're not alone, especially considering the fact that the Chronicle during much of Edward's reign appears to cloak battles as construction projects. And here we see him constructing a burr in another kingdom. It's weird, but it's not the only strange thing that was happening. The other odd thing is that we're seeing the economic footprint of Chester being a lot bigger than it should be. Now, Chester wasn't without the ability to produce wealth. It had nearby farms that were opening back up. It had a growing pottery industry. And then there was the Cheshire salt industry, which drew a substantial income. Chester had some real things going for it now that the people returned to the city. But it wasn't London. And yet, Chester, in the 920s, suddenly sprouts its own mint. And it was a prolific mint. In fact, starting in the 920s and continuing for about 50 years, coins produced in the Chester Mint became the most common English coins that were found in Irish hordes. And mints during this period were a huge deal. They're not just some cottage industry that rises organically from enterprising merchants. They're the result of deliberate royal efforts. And Chester's new mint was no different. And historian Michael Dolly suggests that this mint actually wasn't new. It just had a new location. He suggests that the old location was Tamworth. So to place all of this in context, within a year of Athelflaed's death, Edward has disinherited his niece and annexed Mercia. At the same time, we see Edward militarizing northwest Mercia, building burrs around Chester, forcefully occupying Manchester, and even building a burr within the kingdom of Gwynedd. And we see evidence of Edward likely restructuring the shire system of Mercia and deliberately denying the Mercian capital of Tamworth its own shire. And still in this same period, the mint of Chester was established, perhaps being relocated from the now disfavored city of Tamworth. And the coins made there start appearing across the Irish Sea. All of this, from the death of Athelflaed through to the burrs in Wales and the coins in Ireland, 
took place over the course of just four years. So what does all of this mean? I don't know. I like telling stories, and to tell a story, oftentimes you need a clean narrative, something for the audience to hold on to. And buttoning all of this up with a final declaration that Edward was up to no good from the start would certainly fit that bill. But the truth is that while there is evidence of conflict with Edward coming out of the Northwest, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an explanation for absolutely everything that was going on here. And there is another potential explanation for Edward's construction spree. Trade. Chester, like London, was a port town with an industrial community and the potential of a flourishing trade-based income. It actually might have been the reason why Athelflaed decided to reestablish it. And when Edward came to rule over Mercia, placing a mint at Chester might have been his effort at creating a sort of stimulus package, since it would have increased the town's wealth and stature substantially. And Chester really did have a lot going for it. It was the only sizable Anglo-Saxon urban settlement with a port that close to Ireland. And while the Vikings were dangerous raiders, they were also prolific traders, and the opportunities for those markets were significant. And it might not surprise you to learn that Chester pottery from this period is found in Viking Dublin. So with that in mind, if they were increasing the economic impact of Chester and going so far as to even move the mint into the city, dropping a supporting burr at Thelwall might make perfect sense. Furthermore, building another burr a couple years later at the mouth of the Cluid would also make sense, since with the growth of prosperity came a greater risk of raids. So even if there were elements that were resisting Edward's rule, and considering the strangeness of Athelflaed's death, Edward's heavy-handed military actions, the likely restructuring and breaking of the Mercian capital of Tamworth, and the disinheritance of Elfwyn, it's not like the Mercians lacked a reason to resent Edward's rule. But even then, it doesn't mean that Athelflaed's death was the cause of everything that happened after it even though that narrative is very tempting. There's a famous logical fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc. It means after it, therefore because of it. Basically, if I'm falling for this fallacy, if I forget to wash my undies and the timbers win, suddenly I'm going to start thinking that, oh, the timbers won because I didn't wash my undies, therefore my undies are magic. And it's a logical fallacy because sometimes things follow other things with absolutely no causation relationship. And bringing that back to Edward, the reality is that this construction spree might have just been economic in nature. Furthermore, even if it was political, it could have been political in a way that was completely separate from any sort of loyalty to Athelflaed. Think about what we know about Chester. It was derelict until 907 at the earliest. And considering the way that these territories were arranged, that pretty much meant that the area that we would come to know as Cheshire was wild and woolly. So the burrs that Edward built might have been his efforts at reestablishing an effective royal presence, since his annexation really wouldn't matter all that much if he couldn't actually administer the region. And administering during this period required a network of estates and other substantial holdings that were loyal to the crown. So we're talking about loyal bishops and friendly Mercian nobles, that sort of thing. But if those nobles and bishops weren't available or you weren't confident in their loyalty, there was one other way that you can handle that issue. Assuming you were powerful and wealthy enough, and kings were very powerful and wealthy, you could create your own influential land holdings. 
So building military posts could have been Edward's attempt at securing and consolidating his authority over a territory of Mercia that was a bit less organized than the core regions. And you can see how these construction projects might have been an attempt to assert royal authority. I mean, Athelflaed reestablished Chester, which controlled large amounts of agricultural lands. Runcorn was tied to a politically important estate at Halton. Thelwall was close to the important town of Warrington. Manchester was an influential holding that held sway over nearby estates. There was even a wealthy estate near the mouth of the Cluid in Ruthlin. It was called Englefield. We also see Edward building an estate near Chester called Farndon. All of these locations could be, and probably were, evidence of Athelflaed's and later Edward's attempts at consolidating their hold over northwestern Mercia. But here's the most important part about all of this. None of this means that Edward was innocent when he occupied Tamworth, nor when he appeared to use reshiring to gerrymander Tamworth into obscurity, nor when he disinherited his niece, nor when he occupied Manchester. Just because some of these building projects might have been motivated by economics and a desire to consolidate his hold over Mercia doesn't explain everything. Furthermore, we don't have firm evidence that any of this was actually being done for trade or consolidation purposes. It might have been entirely based around Athelflaed. We don't know. But my suspicion here is that it was actually probably a mix. Edward, what with the strangeness of his marriages and the bizarre way that his sister died and his reaction to it. Well, I doubt he was a morally upstanding guy who never made an enemy in his life. But it is possible that the later resistance to Edward's rule that was coming out of Cheshire could have had nothing to do with Athelflaed and was simply a bunch of people who were traditionally left to their own devices getting pissed off because Edward was throwing his weight around. Without more direct evidence, we won't ever be sure. Because people are complicated, and being a king is even more complicated. But at the end of the day, the fact remains that ruling is hard. And it's even harder when you're unpopular, as Edward appears to have well known. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>